You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Catholic Saints. My name is Mary McGeehan. I work here at the Augustan Institute, and today I am joined with Dr. James Perthrow, Professor of Theology and Sacred Scripture. Is that correct? That is very correct. Thanks so much, Mary, for having me on. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, so this series is to talk about the lives of the saints, what we can learn about our friends in heaven to be sources of inspiration for us today and our own journey. Um, so today we're going to talk about St. Augustine of Canterbury. I personally know little about the saint. Uh, so what are just some biographical information that we should know about the saint? Yeah, so re really basic, and I, we can come back to any of this that's that's interesting, but really, really basic. So St. Augustine of Canterbury uh, uh, was born in, uh, 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 he, he, he was a saint in the sort of 500s and died in the um, uh, early 600s in Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And he was bishop at Canterbury, which is in Kent, which is um, uh, uh, in, in England. You can go uh, over there today, of course. Um, but he's called the apostle to the English mm -hmm. because he was sent by uh, Pope Gregory I to evangelize the Anglo-Saxons there. There were already lots of Christians um, in the area who had been Christianized through the Roman Empire, but then the Romans had pulled all their legions out in the 400s, and there were all these sort of Irish and, and Celtic Christians on the one side, and then a whole bunch of pagans uh, in the middle, sort of separating all of the Christians from uh, the, the, the European side and the Eastern side of the British Isles. Mm -hmm. um, and they were really isolated, and there were a whole bunch of these pagans there, and nobody was really missionizing them or evangelizing them. Um, and so anyway, he got sent with several other people uh, in the late 500s to go and try to convert um, uh, the people there, the pagans, the Anglo-Saxons, okay. um, and he had a lot of success. Um, so was he one of the first missionaries, would you say, who brought Catholicism to the Great Britain region? Um, uh, so there was already a lot of, like, again, kind of Irish and Celtic Christianity okay. on the west side of the island from the Romans, mm -hmm. right? Because some of the people had come over during the Roman Empire time uh, and evangelized a lot of people. But he was the first missionary, not to the kind of Celts and Britain people on that side, but... Uh, to the Saxons and the Angles, the what now we call English, right, where we got that word from. Mm -hmm. So he's the apostle to the English. Um, and, and another thing that's interesting about him is that this is a time period where um, uh, the, the, the Celtic church was... Celtic church isn't really like super helpful because it wasn't like that organized, like there was a Celtic Celtic church with like one guy in charge or something like that. But uh, kind of Celtic Christianity in its different forms was was sort of isolated, right? They're way off on the island and they're not even on the side where they can easily pop over to France and go over to Europe. They're really disconnected also from the Pope and Rome. Hmm. Um, and some of the things that develop there are really, really helpful um, uh, and that we still do today, like our practice of having private confession and private absolution and penance. Uh, that really comes from them uh, 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 more than it came from uh, Rome or Greece or any of the other places where they did things a lot more publicly. Okay. Um, uh, so a lot of the things that happened in Celtic Christianity, uh, who had already been evangelized by like St. Patrick and St. Columba, um, in the 400s. Uh, some of those things were really cool, but then other ones were kind of at variance from what was going on in the rest of the world, and people didn't know it. 
um, when when Augustine because they're isolated. Yeah. yeah. So when mm. Augustine shows up in England and he ends up meeting some of these Celtic Christians, like, wait a minute, <laughs> why do you celebrate Easter on that day? Why do you? They had other controversies about the tonsure, the sort of monkey haircut. Oh, not, yeah. Sorry, not a monkey haircut, a monk monastic oh, haircut. <laughs> um, uh, and it's a good look. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> it is. And the the Roman one was, you know, sort of a, 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 a shaved top up here, um, and they had a different custom uh, among the Britons and the Celts. And we're not a hundred percent sure exactly what it was because there aren't a whole lot of descriptions. But there's one. Uh, 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 a little sort of stat bit of statuary that we have where it looks like their tonsor had hair going up like this and then shaved all the way down the back and in the front front. So it was like they just had a sort of stripe of hair here instead of just the stripe of hair around here. And of course, these are really deep-seated customs in mm -hmm. how you look, how you dress, right? And so there's all these, there, there end up being these fights about these sorts of things and the date of Easter and, and other things like that. So these guys okay. were really isolated. Hmm. And Augustine was part of really not only bringing Christianity to the Angles and the Saxons, okay. right, who had been pagan, but also starting to integrate, which took, you know, another 60 to 100 years, starting to integrate the Celtic Christianity with uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the sort of universal customs that were observed in the West. Okay. So were there particular teachings that he's known for or particular, I don't know if there were, it sounds like integration of cultures, if this community was pretty isolated, that he has a legacy for that um, we, yeah, just praise him for today. Yeah. So his, uh, uh, when, when, when I look at, at his own legacy and the story of his life, I, I think especially about three things. We, we don't have a whole lot of material from him specifically about like a specific contribution to doctrine, right? Like we would expect from a doctor of the church. Mm -hmm. But in his saintliness and his virtue, um, uh, here's, here's, here's three things. The first one I think is obedience. Um, so one of the things that's, that's quite amazing to me in this story, um, thinking about it today in terms of uh, uh, all of our fears, both in terms of uh, the life of mission, but then also when there's kind of culture clashes, right, um, or, uh, or clashes between traditions, right, where we get yeah. nervous and we don't want to engage, right. um, or we don't want to obey, maybe. So. Uh, in about 597 AD, Augustine with these 40 other so guys gets sent. He was an abbot in Rome. He was known for being good at sacred scripture, and then he was also a good administrator because he was head of a monastery, or he's a prior um, at a monastery in Rome. Gregory sends him with these guys over here to England because a Roman Catholic from France has just married the king of the Angles in Kent. Um, uh, and so they're like, okay, well, that's a, that's a good inroad, right? So it's a nice strategy. <laughs> but they get all the way over to France, and all of the guys with Augustine say, hey, you know what? We don't want to do this. There are a whole bunch of pagans there. We've heard about brutality. The king isn't going to be super nice to us. Like, this is going to be terrifying. Right? So they <laughs> yeah, so they actually sent Augustine back to Rome before they even got to England <laughs> to go back and ask the pope, hey, can we not? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And Pope Gregory said, no, go, <laughs> you must go. And so he said, oh, okay. So they went back and, and they obeyed, right, despite all of their fears. Mm -hmm. And here's what ends up happening, right? They get there and the king doesn't convert immediately. He does convert pretty soon. But what he does is he says, you guys are allowed to preach your message. 
I'm not going to force my people to convert, but they can if they want to, and there will be no political uh, repercussions on them, right, if they turn from paganism to your religion. And so they start preaching, right? He founds a monastery there, the monastery of Saints Peter and Paul in Canterbury, but later on it became St. Augustine's um, uh, Abbey is what it's called um, uh, after him. He didn't name it after himself. But anyway, he, uh, so they go there and not only do they find somebody who, right, actually even though he sounds scary and is pagan, right, actually will allow them to preach, ultimately then he converts himself and he doesn't even force all of his own court to convert to, right? Sometimes when a mm-hmm. king gets baptized and becomes Christian, he said, now everybody, you're doing what I'm doing. And, and, and King Ethelbert was the guy's name, and he didn't do that, right? His wife was Christian, now he was Christian, right? But some of the people that he has in his sort of inner council haven't converted yet, and he doesn't force it. There was a lot of patience there, um, and, and all of it, and all of the fruit of like tens of thousands of people, right? And ultimately, right, the, the, the rest of England, ends up converting by this missionary uh, uh, impulse that Augustine has and that he's uh, sent with from the Pope be- because he obeyed, yeah. <laughs> wow. right? So obedience is big. And then also um, uh, striving for unity, right? Um, that there's this, this kind of patience, and yet it's also matched with this missionary zeal, which I think is really cool because, oh, go ahead. Do we know, was his style, was he preaching on street corners? Was he preaching in pulpits? Do, do we know what his method was? Seems seems to be both. Okay. Um, and of course, he had all his, his posse there, right, of people who had come and then of new people that he would consecrate to the priesthood yeah. um, after they'd come through. But he just sort of did everything. Um, they converted old uh, pagan temples to Christian worship. Uh, the king had them change different feast days, right? Old sort of pagan feasts, you know, were sort of transformed into Christian feasts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he, uh, one of the thing, the cool thing about Augustine, I think, is that Christianity had been there for, like we said, you know, a hundred years or so, right? And Columba and Patrick had been there, right, in Ireland, and, and a lot of the Celts had converted, mm-hmm. but they hadn't had a big missionary zeal to convert the Anglo-Saxons. So you just had all these territories where people were like, well, we're Christian, but they're pagan, and that's kind of how it is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when the Pope sent Augustine, he said, no, get them. <laughs> Go tell them the good news, right, yes. and bring them to the faith. And that's what Augustine did. And he just yeah. preached, and he invited, and he seems to have also been fairly patient, even though he also was insistent, right? Um, Interesting. That's a great example of, I think, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, standing on the people that come before us and then being obedient to the Holy Spirit where Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit is leading your particular mission. Mm -hmm. And even in those fears, still being obedient and responding because you don't know what what God's going to do. Yeah, that's right. And and sometimes the Holy Spirit speaking through church officials that you're like, wait, what? Is he serious? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seems like a waste of time. I love that they went to the Pope and (laughs) you could just, are you sure about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we not? Actually, yeah. (laughs) Okay, and then what were the other two? Uh, Oh, sorry. So that yes, uh, yeah. So I had I had three. So one was um, obedience, um, and then another one was his uh, missionary zeal, right? Evangelism, and then unity. Yeah, and then the the third really is just the the unity. So so he himself wasn't incredibly successful at uniting the Roman Catholic Church connected to the Pope and the customs of the rest of the Western world with the Celts. The Celts were right nervous about this. There's politics too, right? Um, but but his influence there and his presence there, and then the legacy that that built up, 
um, in uh, Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English Peoples, uh, English People. Um, uh, uh, he tells us some of the stories about St. Augustine of Canterbury, but then he also tells about how a lot of these things got settled. And one of the things that's fun to read is um, uh, at the Synod of Whitby, um, later in the 600s, when they when when there was finally a decision made about when are we going to celebrate Easter? Because this is a big controversy. Mm. They had already settled it, right? Had already been working on it over between the East and the West, over in like Rome and Greece and Syria and places like that. But but the Celts had just been doing their own thing, and they had calculated based on a reading that they had of something in John's Gospel mostly, and they said Saint Columba, um, who had come and evangelized uh, uh, so many of them. Um, was, you know, had, had, had followed this custom too. And so the king had two delegates, right? One from uh, Rome, uh, one from the English Roman church, right? That, that Augustine had started. And then another one from the Celts. And uh, the guys from the Celts said, well, we're following the, you know, what we think is in the apostle John and it's what St. Columba taught us. And he was a great holy man. And the other guy said, Columba was a great and holy man. But we follow the custom of Saints Peter and Paul who reigned in Rome, and Saint Peter is the one to whom Jesus said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, you're the rock on which I'll build my church. And in Bede's account at least, the king who's trying to help make the decision for his region says to the, says to the Celtic guy, did Jesus say that to Peter? And the Celtic guy goes, well, yeah. And he goes, well, let's follow Peter's custom then. But the guy from Rome didn't say, y'all are wrong, the heck with Columba, right? Forget this other saints, forget all these other people. We're coming in and we're taking over. He doesn't do that. He says Columba was a holy man, but, right? The posture this, of humility. Exactly. Well. This, this custom comes from where Peter is and we want to be there, right? And Columba is still a wonderful person and a saint and a great teacher who evangelized you all. But this is something that we need to correct for the sake of unity and accuracy. And, and that's what they ended up doing, right? And this is how uh, uh, that, that custom kind of sort of gets settled. Okay, interesting. Um, which is, a, which is a, a nice model, not of Augustine himself, but of what he started by just bringing these two into conversation with each other and being a witness mm -hmm. for the goodness of right, universal unity. Because it's so easy to get used to the way that we do things in my house or in my <laughs> parish or in Our my local. state or the U.S. or whatever, and then to go see somebody else and go, what are you doing? You're yes. nuts, right? Yes. Why do you have that problem? That's a dumb problem to have, <laughs> right, without, without understanding and also without the actual purpose of unity and faithfulness mm -hmm. in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. yes. um, so I, I love a beautiful it. example. I think that's a fun example. Yes. Was there anything else from the Celtic church, the history and that integration that we still have today from that missionary unity of bringing them closer into the practices um, of the Roman? The, the, most, the, the, the most important and most universal one really is, is confession. Because um, uh, uh, you, you, had, you had periods in uh, the early church um, kind of in... in uh, Rome and Jerusalem and, and Alexandria and elsewhere, uh, where people might do a private confession mm -hmm. to a priest. So oftentimes it was public, but they might do a private confession to a priest, but then their penance was public, right? And if you were doing penance, you had to sit in the back or you had to wear sackcloth or you had to always be lying on your stomach and you weren't allowed to sing wow. at the singing parts of the mass, right? <laughs> you had to keep your mouth shut. And these were all signs of, you know, of your penance and penitence, yes. right? But the, in the, the Celtic practice was a lot more, had a lot more to do with uh, uh, 
uh, dealing with the sin and then the healing of the person through penance. Um, not that other people didn't emphasize that, but that brought them to sort of emphasize uh, the beauty of a, uh, of, a, of a seal and secrecy over confession mm -hmm. so that people could get everything out mm -hmm. and then receive private counsel right, as to yes. what they should do and yep. then a particular penance. So nobody else is looking around watching going, oh, this week he's in the back. Wonder what he did. <laughs> no singing. I'll go for ask him. around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no singing for you, right? Interesting. Um, uh, and so that's one of the that's 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 probably the most enduring and and to the the current practice of the church today the most important I would nice. say. Absolutely. Um, there were some other things as well, but that's the that's that's a really big one. Okay, thank yeah. you. And out of curiosity, I was uh, telling Dr. Perther earlier that I was you know I know Saint Augustine of Canterbury mostly because I read I read the Canterbury Tales in high school. So is there any connection between, you know, that great uh, poem and St. Augustine, besides it's the same location yeah. of where he lived and grew up and just yeah. represents that so pilgrim it's spirit? It's the same location. They're in the, the Canterbury Tales, they're going to, they're going on pilgrimage to a shrine of a, of a different saint who was killed in Canterbury. Okay. But Canterbury was the capital of Kent, uh, which is where this King uh, Ethelbert was where uh, to to whom he had been sent yes. um, to convert, and so uh, uh, so that became a sort of massive mainstay. And it's it, you know in the history of the church, it's sad because of course um, uh, Canterbury. We think about the Archbishop of Canterbury now, meaning the head of the non-Catholic uh, English Church or the Church of England. Um, and actually, the shrine and uh, relics of Saint Augustine of Canterbury were destroyed oh. in the Reformation in the 1500s. Right. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, and only in 2012 was a new shrine erected to him in Canterbury itself. There's there's been one somewhere else, um, but only in 2012 was, uh, to, at least from what I could see, um, searching around, uh, was a, a shrine erected again to him in Canterbury itself. Okay. Um, Interesting. So, Very good. No. Is there any other interesting insight about St. Augustine of Canterbury that you'd like to share? That's what I've got. That's uh, great. Yeah, just uh, don't forget about this uh, great saint. Uh, and if you've got English ancestry, um, uh, thank him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Irish, too, a little bit. Mm -hmm. they, he yeah. helped bring us in the herd. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. And St. Augustine of Canterbury, pray for us. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.